Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by two historians to talk about suffrage at 100, Women in American Politics Since 1920. This is published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2020, and it's edited by Stacey Toronto and Leandra Zarno. And they're here to talk to me about this excellent book that brings together all kinds of fascinating biographical and institutional and structural and cultural perspectives on understanding women and suffrage and men also. Um, But I wanted to start out by asking them a bit about themselves. Stacey and Leandra, welcome to the New Books Network. Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Thanks, Lily. Welcome. This is Leandra, and uh, we're really thrilled to be talking about Suffrage at 100, which is near and dear to our hearts as uh, political historians and historians of women. And I have to say that my origins coming into this project was in student government and always wondering where the women were. Uh, And so, you know, just thinking about that, um, and I like to impress upon my students Uh, You know, the importance of being at the table and um, a lot of the focus that I do at University of Houston in my classes in women's studies and in history is really trying to um, put women on the on the political map. And uh, so so that's a little bit about where I come from in terms of uh, this interest. Stacey. Hi, everyone. I'm Stacy Toronto. I'm an associate professor of history at Ramapo College, which is New Jersey's public liberal arts college. And I teach about post-war, post-1945 women's political history. I started out looking, I actually worked in politics before graduate school on a failed presidential campaign in 2004. That was the family values election, which made me interested in studying the rise of conservative family values politics uh, when I got to graduate school. And actually, uh, this project with Leandra kind of began, or we at least began talking about it in graduate school. Uh, We met in an archive, like all historians should meet, right? And that happened in, what was it, maybe 2006? Um, And I'll let Leandra tell a little bit about that because I got her really nervous (laughs) in that archive. (laughs) That's right. So I was writing my dissertation on New York Representative Bella Abzug and um, what became my first book that actually came out in 2019 called Battling Bella, The Protest Politics of Bella Abzug, and that's out with Harvard. And um, so I was looking at Bella Abzug's papers at Columbia and, you know, they're so massive, you know, over a thousand boxes. Basically, her staff kept everything, every constituent letter, every memo that passed their um, their desk because they knew that they were making history. And it was unusual the kinds of um, advocacy they were doing, but also the women centered uh, workplace that they were creating. And so the archivists there were really had my back. And this is before social media. We have no sense of who's working on what projects. And they kind of nudged me one day and said, you know, someone else is pulling Bella Abzug boxes. So I was trying to be, you know, very savvy and, and um, somewhat circumspect in, in walking around Stacy's desk and figuring out who she was and what she was looking at uh, in those papers. And um, ultimately, we decided to get lunch together and realize that we were looking at totally different angles of um, politics in the 1970s, um, but using the same, uh, in, you know, congressperson's uh, papers as our, as our vantage point in. Uh, so Stacey, you want to talk a little bit about your approach? Yeah. So I was actually looking, Bella Abzug was a target of the family values conservative right. My dissertation, I interviewed Phyllis Schlafly for it in 2007. And I was actually looking at the women who worked for Phyllis Schlafly in New York State. So as you can imagine, reading Phyllis Schlafly's monthly newsletters that had all kinds of things to say about Bella Abzug, a lot of the women I was studying would write letters to Bella Abzug expressing their opposition to feminist politics. And since Bella's office saved everything, um, the best place for me to find dissident voices on the right was actually in 
the archive, archival boxes of this feminist legislator because they were writing her nasty letters. So Leandra definitely had nothing to worry about because I was looking at the opponents of, of Bella Abzug. Um, and, you know, but that did kind of get us thinking, you know, here it was the 1970s and both women on the right who are trying to move the Republican Party further to the right, as well as women on the left, like Bella Abzug, who are trying to move the Democratic Party leftwards. They were unified on one thing. Both of them thought that more women need to be in politics, which they both saw as a way to move their respective politics forward. And of course, you were both writing the the script, the original script draft for Miss America. That's that's right. Actually, <laughs> this was the moment where we both really discovered that both Bella Abzug and um, Phyllis Schlafly had ran for Congress in 1970, and they didn't just run for Congress; they ran on the same slogan: "A woman's place." is in the House the House of Representatives. And they both were talking about how in their respective political parties, they were the doorbell pushers and they wanted to move out front into politics, out of those back rooms. And so I thought I just thought that was so striking uh, when we you know, first started coming into that um, space of discovery. And even in the um, you know, political reporting in 1970, there was attention to how they were uh, part of the same struggle. And, uh, you know, there was this polarities, they were really representing different polarities in politics, but um, they had this common uh, goal of breaking into uh, politics. So this idea of, um, you know, the year of the woman was starting to come into the political lexicon in that time period. And I just remember coming across uh, stories that uh, drew a connection between Schlafly and Abzug. Of course, Schlafly lost that election. She was devastated by it, and Abzug won. Um, ironically, though, by the end of the 1970s, it's Schlafly that has the um, foot, you know, the leg up in in politics, and and Bella Abzug's in Congress no longer. Uh, so there's, you know, that central um, irony that we explore in Suffrage at 100, um, and so many of us have suffrage. Uh, or not suffrage, but women in politics stories. And so, you know, um, Stacey was talking about her work in campaigning. I did work in campaigning myself, you know, and worked as a White House intern um, during uh, college. And so having those kinds of insider perspectives also has have informed the way that we talk about um, politics in, in our collection as well. So Stacey, and this is an amazing collection. Go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to say, Stacey, you know, texted... In 2018, at the um, really as we started as a society to think about the suffrage centennial, and we both came back to and started to swap stories again about our own political experience, um, and then those time in the archives and realized that you know historians might have something to say about not just how we got to the uh, ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920, but where did we go since then too. And the where did we go since then, of course, is the is the backbone of this book, which is really interesting and takes the reader through different facets of sort of the last hundred years. Um, so it's not just about women as voters, but it's also about women in political office and activism. Um, but I wanted to ask you, how did this book come together? Um, was there a conference? Was there a call for papers? What, how did you assemble it? So it started with a text message. <laughs> so uh, similar to our origins, um, you know, it was, it was the summer of 2018 and both of us were you know, paying attention to political news. And that was the summer before what would become the historic 2018 midterm elections. So, you know, all we were reading and had been reading since the Women's March of 2017 was about a historic number of women running and you know, will this be the year that we get closer to gender parity in Congress? Well, it wasn't. But, you know, we were both wrapping up our respective first books that grew out of those dissertations so many years ago. And we thought, well, the centennials coming up, even if they're not paying attention to women in American politics after the 2018 midterms, if those say don't become as historic as um, they were projecting they would be, we thought at least that's the centennial of the 19th Amendment. 
the media and people will at least then presumably be talking about women in American politics. So that might be a ripe time to put out a collection that really looks at where have women been and or how have they, what has that journey been from voting power to political power and why aren't we at gender? So yeah, it really started with a text message and it was lightning speed to put this collection together in two years, at least for uh, historical publishing. Right. So we put a call out, as as you mentioned, on HNET, which is a place that a lot of historians take, um, you know, take their cue from and look for announcements. And, you know, we also put out some feelers to people we knew were working on uh, women in politics. And this was in 2018. Um, and we basically had, you know, the first, uh, the, or sorry, sorry, the last six months of that year to figure out who to um, bring into the collection and to get first drafts by the, the new year. Um, so lightning speed, it absolutely was, as Stacey mentions. Um, one thing that we found really interesting was, you know, we were hoping for like a full, sw- full scope, full sweep of the 100 years since 1920. Um, but we actually got a lot of submissions in targeted um, time periods. And that's what really formed the, um, the arc of the three parts in the book. Um, and so, you know, the first uh, grouping of articles really thought about what happened to uh, women in politics in the last in the couple of decades after uh, the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Um, and then we got a lot of often biographical essays, actually, um, that focused on a long 1970s. And so, you know, this was the United Nations decade of women um, and really was this um swell moment for legal feminism and for women's interest in politics. Uh, and so that was a big part of the, um, the essays that we received. And then the, we also received a whole, a whole bunch from the last 20 years, uh, which this is uncomfortable territory for historians. You know, we were a little bit unsure, actually, of our footing in the last section of the book, but we decided to hit, you know what, historians can, can provide a first take and it's, and it's high time to do that. Um, and so we're hoping that uh, some of the essays, like, for instance, Ellen Rafshoon writes about uh, Georgia, uh, you know, women running um, in the midterms in 2018, which has become newly important. Uh, so that's a, the chapter Pave It Blue. We thought, okay, we can offer like a first take. These are oral histories of these of these women that other future scholars will build on. Um, we didn't get that much actually from periods that we were expecting, which is the 1960s and the 1990s. Uh, and, you know, historians are, are late, I think, to, to speak to um, and historicize what is the gender gap. And uh, we haven't really done that much work uh, yet in, in the 1992 year of the woman moment. Um, really, you know, I can plug one book on the 90s that I'm thinking of by Lisa Levenstein recently, uh, you know, published that deals with the 1990s. So we're, we're still kind of uncomfortable with that very contemporary space, I would say. Well, we'll make room for you in, in political science. We're okay with well, thank that. Thank you. <laughs> And then just looking at what we got, this rich body of submissions, we decided that we were just going to do the traditional thing of write an introduction, as editors of these academic collections usually do. But given that there were some chronological gaps and given that we really wanted this to have a cohesive argument about the whole broad 100-year stretch, we actually decided that collectively... Andrew and I would write chapter one of the book, which is an overview chapter that, um, you know, puts all of this hundred years together and introduces our overarching argument that the, the subsequent chapters, the different authors who wrote those build upon. So um, I really think like that chapter we ended up writing is really a perfect chapter that you would assign to a lot of courses. Um, especially undergraduate courses that really just puts all of that history in one place. And it's a, it's a really spectacular chapter because it does sort of knit together all of the sort of pieces that the, the rest of the book then explores in a lot more detail. Um, 
And and so it wasn't just an introductory chapter. It's a it's a sort of historical overview. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how the two of you collaborated on that particular chapter? Yeah. So we had a lot of conversations about what we thought were the major arcs in um, women's political history. Uh, we also thought about why. Um, even bringing the idea of women's history and political history together is still such a um, unusual thing. And so we felt like a sense of responsibility to try to set the tone um, to highlight that it's high time to think about women as political um, and to change the conceptualization of political time to shift it away a little bit from the presidential uh, cycles and to think about you know, maybe uh, measuring the value um, or the power in politics by how close you are to the White House is 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 undercutting um, some you know really important work we can do to think about how women have been essential um, political actors. Uh, you know, for for many many years, uh, we still deal with that highest glass ceiling. Though we're certainly closer with um, Kamala Harris about to become vice president. Um, but, you know, why do we have this enduring political um, male political liter- leadership ideal was really what, what it came down to with, uh, for Stacey and I to try to figure that out. So we wrote the introduction um, to that chapter together. Then we wrote different parts of it um, separately and then, you know, wordsmithed uh, to bring our voices together, you know, all of the various parts. Um, and what's been such a pleasure about this collection was working with Stacy in a collaborative writing uh, way. And we've had an opportunity to write some op-eds uh, for the Washington Post and other uh, venues to build on uh, the, the argument that we're making. Um, so if, if you'll uh, tolerate it, we'd love to t- talk a little bit about our argument. Absolutely. Um, That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> so Stacey, do you want to draw focus a little bit more to that, uh, that concept that we came up yeah. with? Absolutely. So what we so center, essentially what we're looking at is why women have struggled to translate voting power into equal political power. And what we argue is that, you know, this is a democracy that is set up with a lot of rhetoric about equality. Uh, but it's just that rhetoric. And, you know, this is a system of governance that is set up by and for wealthier white men of means. And that simple fact, even though the story of American political history is, you know, opening up the political sphere to more actors, right? Um, Still, that founding concept is still with us today and it has implications still today. Um, You know, ideal politician in many ways still today is a white male. And you might even have seen, you know, evidence of that in the 2020 Democratic primary, right? In a time, what many perceived as a time of crisis, who got the nod is, you know, an older white man for president. Um, and so in many ways, what we're talking about is still playing out today. And, um, you know, Leanne, we can talk about, but basically the fact that there's always been a preference for white male political power, it has several implications for women upon getting the vote, right? You can't run for office and unless you are a voter. And it's in 1920 when at least that guarantee of um, women being able to vote at the federal level is enshrined in the Constitution. But it's just really a, a guarantee that is not quite a reality for everyone. So we look at and trace out how different women were impacted by that founding male political ideal in the, since getting uh, suffrage enshrined in the constitution. And, and I wanted to follow up a, a small question also in, in part of what you discuss is the, not only the founding ideal with regard to sort of the, the white male heterosexual politician, property holder, et cetera, but also the sort of revert the negative of that, which is the Republican motherhood. Absolutely. Um, and 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 how that is also something that you and your authors 
sort of tease at in a lot of the chapters. Absolutely. So Leander, so what we said is that with that founding ideal, women were basically on two tracks from 1920. And uh, Leandra can tell you a little bit about one of the tracks that we tease out in the book, and then I can respond to the other. Right. So this concept of Republican motherhood, just to set that up a little bit, um, has absolutely hemmed what um, the access and the kinds of ways in which women could even talk about wanting the vote in the first place. And so one of the winning arguments for suffrage was this idea of civic housekeeping. Women will clean up, you know, the urban filth, um, you know, deal with immigration problems that we have, deal with social social reform and welfare problems that we have, et cetera. Uh, And these are, this is the domain, this is the lane of, of women. Uh, and it's really just basically an extension of the home. We are moral guardians of the home, and so we'll be moral guardians of the cities. Um, so that's why you give us the vote, uh, so that we can attend to the women and children and family, and you can stay focused on foreign affairs, military, the real hard politics, right? So this kind of concept, it was one of the winning arguments to get the vote and was sustained forward. Um, so what... Uh, Stacy and I really draw focus to is that after the um, 19th Amendment, women were facing a two-pronged fight to get from voting power to political power. And white women dealt with the, um, you know, trying to sustain this Republican motherhood. Stacey will talk about that in a second. Um, but I think it's really important even before thinking about that to consider that, um, the 19th Amendment still set up voting as a privilege and not a right, necessarily. So women of color, poor women, uh, had to sustain a very broad-based challenge and struggle to have access to the vote, um, because essentially it was a white woman's vote uh, in 1920. Now, there were thousands of African-American women who, in 1920, you know, challenged that um, assumption of the white woman's vote and did show up at the polls and did vote. Um, but it took, you know, just a matter of months really to get um, some of the exclusionary practices like poll taxes, uh, grandfather clauses, you know, a white primary that Texas was very good at, cha- at putting forward um, into place. And so it's not really until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that we truly see uh you know, all women um, and all all Americans um, able to vote. Um, it's not till 1924 with the Snyder Act that Native American uh, women vote. It's not till 1943 that Chinese immigrants are no longer barred to vote in 1952 with Japanese Americans. Um, and so this is really, I think, one of the really important legacies, uh, but also realities that we try to trace out in our book that uh, 1920 is not the end-all be-all, but that the struggle really continues for, you know, a number of other decades um, to the point that I think it's important to draw focus to, um, you know, even now that these struggles do continue. And so we end our book really drawing focus to Stacey Abrams and to Shelby Beholder in, you know, 20, 2013 decision by the Supreme Court that undercut the Voting Rights Act. And all of the different ways that um, we're still struggling to even have just that basic first prong of voting power. Um, But now to political power and maternalism, this idea that we also trace out from and connect back to Republican motherhood. Right. So as we were saying, you know, this democracy is set up by white men of means. And when women like Abigail Adams ask her, asks her husband, John Adams, you know, don't forget the ladies when you're writing up this constitution in Philadelphia, you know, the guys forget the women. And what they do is they say, you don't need the vote because men will vote for you. Your job is to raise the gener- the next generation of leaders, your sons. And of course, this concept only applies to wealthier white women who can be these Republican mothers because it's only their sons that the founders imagined being the next generation of leaders in America. And, you know, for Abigail Adams, it works out well because she actually does give birth to a future uh, president, John Quincy Adams. But, um, you know, this ideal of a white woman is a mother to a future leader is really what white women face upon getting the vote in 1920. 
they get the vote and immediately start trying to translate that voting power into political power. But mostly only widows are being elected until the 1960s. Um, we have a chapter in the book by Katie Parkin, um, in which there's a quote basically saying, and this quote is what her chapter takes its title from, basically the best ticket to Congress better than a log cabin is a dead husband for a white woman. So, I mean, this idea that your husband will represent your politics for you, it's you know, it's carrying out even after his death for white women. They're only really get attaining any bit of political power if they have a dead husband who um, can pass his seat onto his widow until an appropriate man male replacement can be found. Um, so, you know, for white women, as they do try to engage in politics, they're going to the Hill, they're proposing different forms of legislation. And the only ones that are passing are ones that have a relationship to motherhood or domesticity. The Shepherd Towner Maternity and Infancy Act, which is America's first piece of federal welfare, it passes in 1921 upon women getting the vote. And they're really only successfully able to pass this piece of legislation by threatening, hey, men on Capitol Hill, if you don't vote for this bill that has to do with curbing maternal and infancy mortality rates. Every woman in America will vote against you. Um, and, you know, the, I don't have to tell political scientists that there's absolutely no evidence of anyone ever voting as a gender block. Men have never voted as a gender block. But the idea that men on Capitol Hill would believe that women would vote as a, as a gender block kind of shows that they didn't think of that women as true political actors, because true political actors don't behave that way. So white women really only are getting traction when they're running as widows, when they're putting forth legislation that has to do with domesticity and motherhood. And that's really the case until the equal rights era of the 1960s, which is really our second section of the book that looks at that pivot. But, you know, this idea, this maternalist idea, we can even look at, in particular, white women being judged against it straight into the 21st century. We actually have an article on the 2008 uh, election in which both Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin were judged against this maternal ideal in various ways in that election. So it's like this catch-22 because... You know, on the one hand, um, women can only represent women. <laughs> and then on the other hand, they're immediately called um, failures, political failures, you know, because they're not voting as a black. And so just for to give a sense of this, um, some of the stories that we read when we were starting to write this overview chapter were just amazing. Like, for instance, Charles Edward Russell writes this um, for Century Magazine in 1924 and the the title of the chat of the article is is women's suffrage a failure you know current history same around around the same time Skirt rice and malcolm willie uh basically declare american women's ineffective use of the vote and and these kinds of um determinations of women are politically conse inconsequential because they don't vote as a block were continued on um, and repeated by first historians. So Bill Chafe in his book, The American Woman in 1972, argued women's political standing plummeted because the mass of female citizens failed to act in the cohesive and committed manner which the suffragists predicted. Um, well, certainly suffragists hoped that they would be able to you know, persuade all women to, you know, support their um, essentially progressive agenda. Uh, but conservative women are extremely savvy. And so, you know, the first woman in Congress is Republican Jeanette Rankin, representing Montana in 1917. And she's, you know, very instrumental in getting the suffrage amendment through. Uh, but then the first woman elected after the 19th Amendment was an anti-suffragist, um, also Republican, representative from Oklahoma, named Alice Mary Robertson, who opposed the Shepherd Counter Act that Stacey was just mentioning, opposed anti-lynching legislation, um, so she was highly white supremacist, you know, a major proponent of small government. So the, the real winners in the immediate um, 
aftermath of the suffrage campaign were conservative women um, and really promoted politics pretty similar to, um, you know, Women for Trump, for instance. Uh, and so I think what's interesting that we like to trace out, uh, Stacey and I, um, what, you know, is thinking about these kinds of ideological dis- differences, um, but still there's this common denon- denominator of wanting to be um, in politics, wanting to have that seat at the table. And of course, just like in the later period, um, well, first, I guess two things. One, it's probably not surprising that women who argue for their place in the home in a political system that is set up for men and intended for men, it's probably not surprising that those that type of politics continuously wins out. But then, of course, it's also the obvious that these women who are making that argument are themselves, just like Phyllis Schlafly in the later period, just like when we hear these arguments being um, articulated today, they're being articulated by women who are nowhere near the home, but who are very savvily sort of using that to create space for themselves in the overwhelming male body politics. Um, so we point that out and we, we draw through lines from the 1920s through the 70s and straight into the 21st century. And and so there's there's both the, you know, in in political science, we would talk about the sort of the voting cleavages here in and political cleavage cleavages around the not only the suffrage movement, but women being involved in politics. So moving beyond the vote, as you say, to understanding and and accessing political power but also doing it from different sort of perspectives and, and starting points um, and potentially ending points as well in terms of the goals of their uh, sort of political policy outcomes. Um, but you do sketch out these, these three sections in the book. And I wanted to ask you just to sort of give the listeners a bit of an overview of, you know, how you parsed out sort of suffrage to the 19. Um, to the 1970s and so forth. Yeah, so I can start by talking about the first section and Leandra can talk about a real pivot point that happens in the second section. Um, So the first section really is looking at that two-track set of politics in which we look at the immediate decades after the 19th Amendment is passed and we really trace sort of those two tracks for women who are white, who are able to more clearly articulate this maternalist politics and women of color who in many ways are struggling just to get the vote um, to say nothing of political power itself. And then there's a real turning point in the 1960s, the what, we call, what many historians call the era of equal rights. Yeah, so the turning point definitely is as women shift from women being woman power. Um, so basically, um, you know, the backbone of campaigns, the canvassers, the, uh, you know, strategists and such to demanding woman power, <laughs> the other kind of woman power, uh, which, you know, is basically wanting to actually be seen in politics to, you know, be decision makers. And Part of this uh, comes about as more women actually move into the workplace. And so they never really leave after, you know, engaging in the defense economy of World War II. Uh, And as a result, um, you know, want to be in all public space, uh, you know, in this later period. And so we see a lot of women coming into politics over the course of the 1960s. Uh, some through the workforce uh, and um, through presidential commissions that are set up in the 1960s, you know, some through organizations that are um, new on the scene, like the National Organization for Women, uh, which, you know, basically is set up to to oversee implementation of Title VII uh, of the Civil Rights Act. And um, and then also through the social movements, uh, the 1960s, you know, really was this groundswell moment for um, the civil rights movement, uh, environmentalism, anti-war activism, uh, you know, a whole gamut of of, uh, movement interests. And so there's this mobilization that occurs where women are finding themselves in all of these different social movements and are, you know, very effective decision makers, but being overlooked and um, undervalued. And so they start to come together 
Um, and we can even see this in some of the presidential campaigns in the late 1960s, you know, Eugene McCarthy's campaign um, and uh, Bob Kennedy's campaign, for instance. And uh, so women are starting to uh, find themselves and find each other uh, in these particular political um, alcoves and, uh, you know, start to really come to, um, to, to together. And so one of the most important uh, coalescing moments is really when the National Women's Political Caucus is founded in 1971. And uh, there really hasn't been that much historical attention to this, um, this uh, early progenitor of, you know, all kinds of organizations we know more uh, today, like Emily's List or, um, you know, She Should Run or, uh, and, and essentially trying to, um, bring women into politics by creating a infrastructure to support and recruit them and to, you know, fundraise for them. Uh, that was new in the 1970s. And I think that um, we can see a growth of women in, in Congress in those years um, as a result. And, and so the middle section of our, of our um, collection really tries to spotlight some of the um, you know, women that were coming into uh, politics in those years. Uh, Shirley Chisholm runs for, 19, for um, president in 1972. Louise Day Hicks, who makes her name uh, in Boston as an anti-busing activist and then runs for Congress and, and wins one term in the early 70s. Um, you know, Patsy Takemoto Mink, who hardly ever gets attention and was the first woman of color um, elected to Congress in 1964. Um, and also ran for president in 1972. Um, so these are the kinds of um, figures that we try to spotlight to explore what did women's political leadership look like in those mid-decades. And, you know, when the National Women's Political Caucus was founded, they set a goal. They were founded in 1971, and they set a goal of having 50-50 gender parity in Congress by the centennial, by 2020. And, you know, they didn't even think that was an ambitious goal, you know, looking out 50 years from when they were founded. But of course, you know, here we are in 2020. And it's true, we are with this recent uh, round of elections this month, we are further than we have ever been. And congressional representation is just one marker of where women are in politics, but it's a very important one. And what are we now at 27 point? Yeah, 26.9, I think. 26.9. And we, mm -hmm. before we were at what, 23.7, I believe? We went up, yeah, from 23.7 in the 2018 midterms, which was at that point the highest number. Exactly. So we're further than we've ever been, but, you know, 20 seven-ish percent is hardly 50%. And what we've really seen are these jumps, these big cycles, you know, the historic 1992 election, which was actually our biggest jump in Congress for women, a percentage point jump of four percentage points. Um, and then, you know, in 2018, about 3%, and this is another 3% or so. Um, you know, we really have only seen those kinds of jumps. Um, it is startling to think that, was it more than half of all the women ever elected to Congress and the history of America have been elected since 1998? So, I mean, you know, we're definitely as far as, far as we've ever been. But the fact that we're still marking off these firsts, of course, the very important first of a first woman in an executive power when uh, Senator Kamala Harris becomes vice president, Harris. Um, you know, the fact that we're still marking first also gives you a sense of where we are, right? Uh, you know, if there were, if we were really approaching true gender parity, we wouldn't still be marking these firsts. Yeah. And yeah, the, other the other thing, thing is, is you can really step back. And I think we always assume the, a progress narrative. But one of the things that when Stacey and I started crunching these numbers and kind of looking, especially at on, you know, looking at Congress as a marker, we realized that there were actually less women in Congress at the end of the 1970s than there were at the beginning of the 1960s. So how great it was to have a decade of women, but why was there that, you know, that setback um, that occurred? And could there be one again? 
Um, that's something to really think about, you know, and this particular last election of 2020, we're um, championing how many more Republican women are coming into Congress. Um, but really, it's not that many more because, you know, the largest um, jump in all of U.S. history uh, before this point was 25 seats in both chambers in 2004. And I think we're, we're at one more than that um, at this moment in time. And so, yes, it was a big jump from what it had been in the previous cycle, but not that much more than the most historic moment prior to this point. So the question is, why is it taking so long to have more than an incremental shift forward? And I think that relates back to our our main overarching argument, right? We're talking about um, numbers in a system that was basically set up by and for white men, right? And, you know, the ramifications, the consequences are still felt today and they're felt every cycle. But it's definitely important, these firsts that we are marking, and it will make a difference um, to see a woman vice president, a woman, a, a woman who isn't white as vice president. These are all important markers and, you know, change that we should know. But we also shouldn't be surprised that, you know, that 2020 looks more like this than the vision that those who founded the National Women's Political Caucus imagined back in the early 70s. Right. So one of our, um, I guess, big takeaways is and reasons for putting this, this book together is to see more women in politics, because if we see ourselves there, then we might run more and we might, you know, um, reimagine uh, what a leadership imaginary is in this country that is still so male driven. Um, but also it's easier for, you know, white, me- white women than it is for um, women of color, uh, you know. And so, for instance, one of our chapters in the third part of the book that looks at the 1990s forward, but really 2008 election forward, um, is by Maricela Chavez. And she draws focus actually to the lack of a um, narrative about Latinx women um, and Latinx people. Uh, in political um, history. So if there is no history that has been written, how do we see ourselves in, you know, in the future in political leadership positions? Um, So so it's really that her uh, contribution to this this collection is a call to action, um, as we hope this whole book is for, um, in general, for more people to want to tell the stories of women in politics. Um, And especially, I think, an area that needs to develop is all the women who lose elections. Um, You know, there was a couple thousand uh, that ran for various offices, um, federal offices and such. And, you know, even to the local um, in every 1970 cycle. Uh, But we don't know any of those stories of the women who who ran and lost. And that was the majority, you know. Um, So we're hoping that others will be inspired to um, really fill out the the work that we're just getting started with this collection. And that's really why we wrote this book, of course, for, you know, for academics, for undergraduates and graduate students. But we also, um, we also wrote it for the general public. We wanted people who are reading about the suffrage centennial to also be able to pick up this collection. One of, I guess, the benefits of the fact that it's an academic press each article, we were limited in how long they could be because of, you know, the cost of publishing in the academic world. But I actually think we actually thought that was a plus. Uh, these are about ten, you know, fewer than ten pages. These articles, which is the kind of the perfect amount these days, right? We can almost can't read beyond a tweet these days. So, you know, this is these articles are accessible, and you know, they're not even as long as. A, a New York Times magazine, a Sunday magazine article. And so we hope that, you know, not just academics, but everyone can really enjoy this book and that it's something that academics can give to friends and family who are just interested in politics in general. And And it is really accessible. I, I really enjoyed the fact that they are shorter chapters, but they are rigorously researched and have a lot of really fascinating details. So I appreciate that. And the diversity of voices also that you include in 
in the list of, of contributing authors is excellent. Thank you. <laughs> and, and so I, I wanted to ask just one question, and this is not like, which is your favorite child? Cause that's not what I'm asking. <laughs> um, but when you re- were receiving the chapters as the authors were turning them in, were you surprised by any of the research that you came to read from your authors? Well, definitely um, some of the stories that are here are for, are told for the first time and that we, you know, really value that they're part of the con- you know, conversation. And so, for instance, Holly Miowak um, guys uh, wrote about Elizabeth Peritrovich. Is that it, Stacey? I think it's Paradovich. Paradovich. So not not what you would expect. (laughs) But so anyways, um, this is a, you know, major figure in the Alaska Native, um, you know, movement that I think is not nationally known as well, but really uh, in Alaska set the tone for what, you know, what ultimately became a national conversation about um, the importance of having uh, equal rights legislation, and you know, really drew focus to uh, indigenous rights alongside women women's rights, and and um, was able to navigate that space in between maternalism and equal rights. And I found that uh, her story was really powerful. And this year, the U.S. Mint um, actually minted a, a you know one a silver dollar that has her has Elizabeth Rachovich on it. I'm still messing how you spent. I'm messing up her last name there, but I think uh, it's important to, to know a lot of the, you know, people in this book that never get attention. And I think um, one of, I mean, of course, this is not a favorite child kind of uh, I said it's not a favorite child. (laughs) But one article that's really timely and exciting, and she actually, one of our contributors, Sarah Rowley, she wrote about political husbands this is a system in which women are told, you know, you don't need to be in the system. You exist as the wife. You can raise, you know, the next generation of political leaders. Well, what happens when women are starting to run for office after the 1960s into the 1970s as candidates in their own right? They're not the widow of the man who died in office. Um, you know, there's this the spouse in Washington is supposed to be the woman. And she's supposed to have an auxiliary role. What happens when all these women are elected? How do we treat their husbands? This was a new concept. And I guess that's something, having written about women in politics on the right, but also on the left in the 1970s for so long, I just never thought about their their husbands or their family members, right? And these men really confounded the the political norm in Washington, D.C., you know, can he go to a tea? Uh, You know, I guess he's going to keep his career. We never assumed a woman would. So she has a great article. And, you know, with um, Doug Emhoff, uh, Emhoff, right, Uh, our new second gentleman, our first second gentleman, uh, you know, this is a new concern, right? You know, what will he do? Will he do what the the VP's wife traditionally did. So she wrote an article for the Made by History section of the Washington Post that Andrew and I contributed to uh, about this and sort of historicizing the new role of the first second gentleman. <laughs> that was a fun, that's a fun and very timely chapter. And I, I I love that chapter because I also do follow the sort of roles of the the the, the spouses. Um, in my own research, um, particularly paying attention to popular culture renderings of these imaginaries. Um, And, you know, they've they've appeared on TV, but here we go. Here's the first one we're going to see in the Naval Observatory. So (laughs) let's see what happens. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is a great book on, on the anniversary of the 19th Amendment, but what are the two of you working on now, together or separately? I almost never want to write alone again. I've been writing for so long. And it's been fun. It's so great because of, you know, double the effort, half the work, <laughs> double the output, if that makes sense. Um, so I really am just, having wrapped up this, I'm really just thinking about a next project. 
and um, sort of feeling around. I, it's going to have something to do with women in the 1970s. I'm just not sure yet. So unfortunately, all those archives are closed. And of course. A lot of it is online, but I have a few different ideas, but I'm hesitant to commit them because, well, who knows? And then I'll have to actually do them, and I can't imagine being productive in this pandemic moment. But, um, <laughs> Which so, I understand. <laughs> I hope. I'm lost. <laughs> Well, Stacy's going to help a little bit with the project that I've been working on at University of Houston with my colleague, Nancy Beck Young, who's an incredible congressional and presidential historian. Um, and, you know, Houston was the home of the 1977 National Women's Conference, uh, which basically was the only federally funded and most diverse gathering of American women uh, in U.S. history. And so, you know, it was kind of a model convention in a way. And um, there was actually 56 state and territory meetings leading up to this conference and uh, over 150,000 official pe you know, people participated in those meetings. And then there was 2,000 elected to form a national plan of action that was presented to President Jimmy Carter in 1978. Uh, and so what we're going to do, and we're launching our website in this spring, actually, um, is we're collecting all of the stories of all the people who ever went to the conference, their biographies, their oral histories, um, archival kind of material that talk about their lives. Um, and also, we're doing demographic um, work as well so that we can map out and people can search all the different connections between those um, folks. And then we'll be tracing out the political legacies. So how many women went into politics after this event, how many of the 26 policy planks were actually implemented and to what extent, um, what institutions and networks were built out of the, uh, the conference. And um, so one of the chapters in Suffragette 100 that uh, Judy um, Sushan Wu writes about Patsy Mink draws focus to the 1977 conference and its importance. And I think it's like one of these, like the most important events that happened in the 70s that no one knows about. Um, and so we're going to make sure that at least by the 50th in 2027, uh, they really do. <laughs> and that sounds like an amazing undertaking too. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of work. So for anyone listening, if you're interested, um, you know, definitely reach out because we're going to be having like research teams in every state, um, you know, all the way down to local, you know, local research teams that could either be students and scholar teams or a community group. Um, and so we'll have a lot of crowdsourcing information once the uh, website uh, debuts and I think it's going to be late March. All right. It sounds amazing. And I look forward to possibly talking to you both on the podcast again about future work. Absolutely. And uh, for any of any of you more you know interested, we also wanted to just mention that the podcast uh, She's History by Laura Borsma has done like a full series on this collection. So if you want to hear from some of the authors about their respective chapters, uh, please do tune into that. Thank you. Um, I would like to thank Stacy Toronto and Leandra Zarnow, Zarno for joining me today to talk about the book Suffrage at 100, Women in American Politics Since 1920, published in 2020 by Johns Hopkins University Press, available at Johns Hopkins University Press's website. Any place else you want to give a shout out to? No, thank you so much for having me. This was really great. It's my pleasure. It's a great book. Thanks for joining me today.